Thank you, Suzanne. It's been good to sing again, isn't it? Yeah. Before we get started in Haggai, let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that you have chosen in your wise and good providence to reveal yourself in the words of Holy Scripture. We pray that you would make our minds attentive. We pray that our hearts would be open, that our affections would be turned toward these words. And Lord, most of all, we pray that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ would be seen even clearly here in Haggai, that we wouldn't just approach this as a curious old or ancient text, and that we certainly wouldn't turn it into some moral law of try harder or do better. But Lord, we pray that we would see the hope that we have in Christ being the fulfillment of every single line of the Old Testament. And I pray that that fulfillment and that hope that we have in Him would trickle down into our own lives so that we might see that we too have been crucified with Him and buried with Him and raised with Him to walk in newness of life through the power of your Spirit. And so we pray for your guidance. We pray that you would speak clearly from your word in spite of your messenger, and that we pray that we would hear clearly, and that we wouldn't just hear, but we would understand, and we would put into action the words that we are instructed by this morning. In Christ's name, we pray these prayers. Amen. Well, we are in this short series on Haggai, and it's all about prioritizing worship. It's all about rebuilding the temple. You remember from last week, that's the whole issue. They need to rebuild the temple, and yet they're dragging their feet. They haven't begun rebuilding the temple. It's been halted. What you essentially have is a slab of Uh, of a foundation that's sitting there, and the temple itself is not being built because they have so many other things to do. Well, we saw at the end of chapter 1, though, that after Haggai comes and presents the word of the Lord to rebuild the temple, the people are obedient. They respond positively to this prophetic word, and they are stirred, and the Spirit of the Lord moves among them, causing them to do the work that God has caused them to do. Now, here we are in Haggai chapter 2, a few weeks later, and a new word is issued through Haggai. And we'll look at that in just a moment, but before we go further, the point of this morning is that while we're talking about prioritizing worship, and while we're talking about obedience and holiness, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, the real point that we need to fix in our minds is that this whole issue of building the temple and having the temple in Israel is not and never was the end goal. The temple is a shadow. It's pointing to something more. It's never the final way of God with the world. So let's begin here in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And here's the word of the Lord. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. So this is sort of your political leader here. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest, so that's your religious leader, and to all the remnant of the people. Remember, these are people who have come back from captivity, and now they are back in Judah. And say, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it, is it not as nothing in your eyes? So, three questions here. This word comes to these three different groups of people, but then there are three rhetorical questions. And if you remember from your English classes, rhetorical questions are for effect. They're not necessarily for answers. We typically already know the answers to rhetorical questions. But here they are. First, who is still living that saw the first temple. Now, the first temple is the one that Solomon built. You can read about it in places like First Kings. So that's the great and grand temple that is the, really the glory of Israel. And this temple was destroyed 67 years before Haggai says this. So 67 years ago, there was this beautiful temple, but it was destroyed. And so the question is, who here saw that temple? Now, it's very unlikely that any of them saw it, but they're all aware of how splendid and how glorious it was. And that's really the point of asking this question, to say, this temple was glorious. It was splendid. Next question. How does the temple look to you now? In other words, how does it compare to Solomon's temple, this thing that we're looking at now? Remember what I told you, the thing they're looking at now is a halted construction. It's probably no more grammar geek you pick up on this. The question, the way it's phrased, assumes a yes answer. Is it not worthless in your sight? It implies an affirmative answer. Well, yes, actually, it, it, it is. It, it, it is worthless because obviously our past actions reveal it doesn't matter. So that's what the Lord's doing through Haggai, showing that they have failed to bring about anything remotely close to the temple that Solomon built many, many years prior. But there's a contrast. Look at verse 4. The Lord's not done with this project. Yet now. That's the contrast. Yet now. You might even want to underline this idea that here is God posing all these rhetorical questions. And then he says, yet now. Something new is about to happen. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong. Notice this command is repeated. Old Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. So three times the command, be strong, or some translations have, be courageous, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this command, be strong, we see this command several times throughout the Old Testament. Most notably, we see it in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, I have a mug that says this on it, be strong and be courageous. And in fact, I drank out of it this morning just to get amped up for this sermon. And that's the absolute truth. I have this 
slate of mugs in my cabinet and I'm digging in to grab the be strong and be courageous mug because that's what God's calling his people to do. Be strong and be courageous. But what's really interesting is that when we see this call to be strong, it's always a call to obedience. And in the past, if you know Israel's history, they have always failed. But now is the time for obedience. Now is the time for courage and strength. But we should never get the wrong idea here. When God issues a command, like be strong, or be obedient, or be holy, or fill in the blank with whatever it is, He never leaves us in our own strength. He never leaves us to carry out that command through our own ability. He always gives us what we need. When God calls for obedience, He doesn't leave us to rely on ourselves. Notice the verse says, why are they, or what the verse says, why are they to be strong according to verse 4? Because I am with you. See, work for or because I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. And while we're at it, I'll I'll just point out to you that one of Haggai's favorite designations for the Lord is this Lord of hosts. Some of your translations say the Lord of heaven's armies or the Lord of the armies, something like that. The idea is that the Lord is above all of creation, above every being, whether we're talking humans or angels or demons or whatever we want to fill in the blank with, the Lord is in control, He is mighty, and He has the command of thousands and thousands and thousands at His side. And so He says, take courage because that God, the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, uh, the, the Hebrew word here is Sabaoth, and that's going to be important in just a, a minute. The Lord of hosts is with you. This is repeated again in verse 5, by the way. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. And then the final command, fear not. Don't be afraid. Now notice, what is the basis on which God chooses to act? Well, it's here in verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. God acts based on his own character. God acts based on his own faithfulness. See, he's not acting because you were faithful. He doesn't say that, does he? They haven't been faithful. If we've been reading up until this point, they've failed dozens of times over. And yet God still says, I'm going to be faithful. Why? Because I made a covenant with your fathers. And that means I will be faithful. So this verse tells us something really important about God's character. Something that the New Testament itself says. That even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And usually when we talk about faithfulness, we're talking about one of these great words in the Old Testament that is often translated loving kindness. Sometimes a parallel term occurs with it, which means faithfulness. But this word loving kindness, have you seen that in your Bible before? Or steadfast love? Either one of those would be the same word. You see it again and again. And what, it is a, uh, what it's referring to is, is God's 
faithfulness to his covenant. God's faithfulness to his promises. So the Lord promises to be with his people. Don't be afraid. My spirit is with you. Remember, that's the whole point of the temple in the first place, isn't it? God's presence will be in the temple so that Israel will know God is with us. So that Israel will know that God has chosen us. That God has called us out of slavery and made us his prized possession in this world. But again, I want you to notice that the Lord does this unconditionally. I can't really emphasize this enough. So in emphasizing this in verse 5, according to the covenant that I made. God doesn't make these decisions based on how far we respond. It's not as though God is saying, if you walk halfway down the aisle, I'll meet you there. What we see throughout Scripture is a God who is constantly moving toward humanity. A God much like the father of the prodigal son, as soon as he catches a glimpse of the prodigal son, is running down the road, not waiting for the son to get there and apologize. You see, God moves unilaterally. If we want to think about this theologically, the really important piece here is this. God exists before time began, right? Before any of creation was even brought into being through the spoken word. And yet God, according to scripture, had already determined to redeem his creation. That's a big thought. The way Ephesians 1 puts it is before the foundation of the world, God had chosen to bring together his people, to bring together his church. These huge thoughts of what God does based on his own determination, based upon his own free will. So he does all of this according to the covenant that he made with them. So God acts before he issues a command to his people. And this is God's pattern throughout all of Scripture. He acts before he issues the command. What God has done precedes the call to obedience. I could just take you to the Ten Commandments for one thing. Often the Ten Commandments are misunderstood. It is thought that we teach the Ten Commandments as these rules to please God, but that's not at all how they're presented in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is a God who comes down and removes His people out of a horrible situation of slavery. He brings them to the foot of the Mount of Sinai, and He says to them, I am your God now that I am your God and you are my people. Here are some ways to live in light of that. That's what the Ten Commands are. So it's always God acting before there is any call to obedience. And so we see that right here. The Lord has made a covenant and he's calling his people to come back and remember what he's done. This is important for our purposes because the last few weeks we've been talking about obedience and we've been talking about holiness here at the church. They are necessary for the renewal of the church. I've said that time and time again. We can't expect God to bless something that is not following hard after grace and holiness and obedience. But we have to keep all of this straight. Attempts at holiness without relying on the work of the Spirit given to us through the work of Christ are like trying to start a car without an engine. We will be floundering. 
Our ability to be holy is woefully lacking. Martin Luther captured this beautifully in the second verse of his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Don't ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. It's so important that we remember that the Christian walk is not try harder or do better, but it is fix your gaze on the only one who can free you from that thing you're dealing with. Our eyes must remain fixed on Jesus, who has won our righteousness. And that reliance is necessary because the Lord is the one who ultimately does the work. That's exactly what we learn in the next few verses. Haggai uh, 2, 6 through 8. Look at those with me, beginning in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. Now notice the subject here. I, I, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now notice this language of shaking the heavens and shaking the earth and the sea and the dry land and all the nations. That's not typical language. That's not something that happens. When the Bible uses this language, it's always talking in a cosmic sense, saying something that you could have never imagined is about to happen. And think about it. How else would you describe something that you've never seen before other than in this cataclysmic language of stars falling from heaven or the, blood, or the moon turning to blood or the earth shaking or, or the nations being shooken? All, all of that is a way of saying that something huge is happening. And Haggai is pointing this out because here is our first hint, and don't miss this, here is our first hint that something bigger than the temple is coming about. This isn't just about a temple. There is something bigger happening. I will shake the entire universe. The fact that all the treasures of the nations are coming in, as Haggai tells us, or as the Lord says also speaks to how universal this is going to be. This isn't just going to be a big deal in Judah. We're not just talking about building a temple in Judah. We're talking about a time where God does something that's so big that the furthest corners of the globe fill it. The nations from east to west will be shaken because of this huge, big, massive thing that God is up to. And so the section reaches a crescendo in verse 9. The latter glory of this house, that is the temple, shall be greater than the former, that is Solomon's temple, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, again the temple, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now pay close attention to this. The first temple, Solomon's temple, 
was splendid. It had the best materials from the known world. If, you, if you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, do you remember those chapters explaining the temple? They're awful. I mean, they just go on and on and on and on about the engravings and all the resources they're bringing. But they have a purpose. The purpose is to say, look at what God is doing with this temple. But again, don't miss sight. This is a shadow of the real thing that's going to be even better that's coming. So, it had the best materials, the original temple. But this new temple here in Haggai, that's not going to be anywhere near like that. There's no way. They don't have the resources. Even back in chapter 1, God isn't saying go to Lebanon to get the best cedars. He says go up on the mountain and find whatever trees you can find and bring those down. We'll build the temple with those. Big difference in resources. They don't have the time to do what Solomon did. They They don't have the money to do what Solomon did. They just came out of slavery and captivity. And there's no way that this temple in Haggai is going to match the visions of earlier prophets like Ezekiel. The whole end of the book of Ezekiel talks about this temple that's going to come and it's going to be the second temple and God's glory is going to be there and it's going to be so much better than Solomon's temple. And yet when we read about what they're doing here and we read about what they do in Zechariah, it doesn't come anywhere close to that vision. So how is this new temple that they're, they're building here in Haggai and that will be completed in a few years, how is this going to be more glorious than the first? And how, how in the world is there going to be peace in this new temple? We know there's no peace once this temple's built. It doesn't magically bring peace across the world. And by the way, peace has broad connotations. You may already know the Hebrew word, it's shalom. But it doesn't just mean peace in the sense of no conflict. But it means wholeness and completeness. And the way God intends things to be. Very much like when He looks out over creation and says, It is very good. The biblical story tells us that one day God's going to look out over His creation after He's redeemed it through Christ and He's going to be able to say the same because peace, wholeness, goodness, shalom is going to be everywhere. Every square inch of creation. So that, that clearly isn't happening here in Haggai. How, how is the latter glory going to pass the former glory? How, how are we to make sense out of Haggai 2.9 and what the Lord is promising here? Well, notice two words here. The latter glory. So I want you to hang on to glory. And then that last one, peace. Glory and peace. Those are two things I want you to hold on to for just a moment. Now, it is true that the temple here in Haggai will be completed. But again, it will be nothing like Solomon's temple. And about 15 years prior to Jesus' birth, Herod the Great will make all these grand uh, changes to the temple and it will be be, uh, beautiful and splendid and audacious, but none of that will actually please the Lord. In fact, what we see here in Haggai, the hints are clear that God is interested in more than buildings. And when we combine that with the whole story from Genesis to Revelation, we see that pretty clearly. So here's what will be helpful for us to do. It will be helpful to do what we would call a, a biblical theology of the temple. What I mean by that is a brief sketch of how the Bible lays out this theme of the temple. 
Now, this could easily be done in 10 weeks. We're going to do it in like five minutes, okay? So 10 weeks to five minutes, we've condensed it. And I'm going to try to do this quickly and make sense to you as we do it. So we start with creation. You know that. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then there's the creation in the garden. And God shows his glory and his goodness in creation. And even in the garden, we learn in chapter 3 of Genesis, God comes down in a present manner. We don't know what that present manner looks like exactly. But we know, know that God makes his presence felt and known directly in the garden. We're told he walks with his people. Unfortunately, sin fractures that relationship. It makes it impossible. As soon as sin enters into the picture, there is this rift between God and mankind so that mankind is actually running from and hiding from God. And there is this rift between mankind's Holiness that no longer exists, their purity no longer exists, and the pure, perfect holiness of the living God. And so, humankind are expelled from the presence of God in the garden. But later, God moves toward the people again. We see this all throughout Genesis, but let's jump ahead. After freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt, he gives Moses this pattern, this tabernacle pattern. And he says, when you build this tent, this tabernacle that will move with you, you follow the pattern and my presence will come and it will sit in this tabernacle so that you will know the living God is among you and that I am in your midst. And what's interesting about the tabernacle pattern is it has all of these parallels with creation in Genesis. It reflects intentionally the garden and creation. That's why the colors are what they are. They reflect the stars and the sky. All of these things are reflected intentionally because we are moving along this trajectory, this story of where God once dwelled with his people and he intends to do that once more when the story is all said and done. So the tabernacle will be this temporary place of God's presence. But of course you know to enter into it one must be perfectly holy. So sacrifices are necessary. And there's this elaborate sacrificial system that develops in Israel. Then as Israel moves from a roaming nation to, or a roaming group of people to an established nation in their land, God gives them instructions for something more permanent, a temple. And the temple confirmed God's election of Israel and it confirmed all of his covenants all of his agreements, all of his promises, especially the one with King David where he tells David, one day, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever and ever. And the temple became sort of the centerpiece of that covenant because it is David's son, Solomon, who builds that temple. Unfortunately, it's not Solomon they were looking for. He fails to be the guy they're looking for. It's not him. And unfortunately, that temple is destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 under Nebuchadnezzar. A second temple, though, this one here in Haggai, is built in response to the prophetic word of prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. But even then, the Old Testament closes not 
with this thunderous applause of the temple has been rebuilt and Israel has been restored and Messiah and the new King David is sitting on the throne. That's not how the Old Testament closes at all. Instead, it closes with a whimper, with an aching longing for God to do what He promised to do, to do something more glorious than He had ever done and to bring peace to the world. Exactly what He promised to do here in Haggai 2.9. The latter glory will be greater than the former glory and there will be peace in it. And yet by the time Malachi pins his last word, or in the Hebrew Bible, the typical structure was Second Chronicles, both of them end with this expectation of looking for something more. Still hasn't come. Well, then we get to the New Testament. And Jesus has some really weird things to say about the temple. Let me just give you a few examples. For example, in Matthew 12, 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. Something greater. The latter glory will be greater than the former. Remember, Haggai? And then in John 2.19, just one more example. After driving people out of the temple, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, this creates some controversy. They say that's impossible. People can't build temples in three days. They couldn't even do it today, let alone 2,000 years ago, right? But John tells us what Jesus really meant in verses 21 and 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, he's not just making an analogy He's not just comparing himself to a temple. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the temple. I am what you've been looking for all along. I am the latter glory that is greater than the former glory. I am the fulfillment of what Haggai 2.9 said. One more place, just sort of off the cuff here, that's a good connection, would be, do you remember Moses when he says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord puts him in this cleft of a rock and hides him, and he just sees the very faintest glimpses of the glory of God. What's interesting is that when we get to John's gospel in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus radiates the glory of the unseen God. And then we're told this, he tabernacled, he dwelt, the word is literally the verb form, tabernacled, among us. God comes down into time and space to be among us. So when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, he's saying God's presence is actually here. That's the whole point of the temple all along. The bricks and the stones don't mean anything. God's presence means everything. Then, of course, Jesus is raised from the dead and his followers even then expect things to be reestablished. But he tells them he's going to take His place on the throne. But He will send His Spirit to live where? Inside them. God's presence. No longer just among His people, but inside His people because of what Christ has done. So that Christ and His followers will be permanently united. Do you know what it means to say you're in Christ? It means to say you have union with Him. That His death is your death and His resurrection is your resurrection. But it also means His Spirit is yours. It's inside you. 
changing you. It's that war you feel as a Christian because there's something new inside you. The way the New Testament fleshes this out is that the people of God, what we call the church, which is not the building. This is not God's house, by the way. God doesn't live here. God lives in His people, what the New Testament calls the temple of God. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside them. Jesus, we are told, is the cornerstone of that temple. And why would that be the case? Because this temple is the grand display of God's glory, of what He has done in Christ. It is built on the cornerstone of Jesus, founded on the prophets and the apostles, and now we are being built up into God's temple. It's not a church building or anything like that. It's everyone in this room and everyone around the world in every country you can fathom who names the name of Jesus as their Savior. That is the temple of God. And it is the display of God's glory in this world. But God is not done. See, through His church, He is displaying His glory and gathering people to Himself and then filling them with His Holy Spirit so that they become holy displays of His glory. All of this is the process of redemption. God is acting decisively in Christ through the Spirit to buy back His creation from sin, Satan, and death. And when all is said and done, it won't just be a particular group of people who will make up the dwelling place of God. No, all creation itself will be the dwelling place of God. The goal and finality of the temple trajectory throughout the Bible is summarized in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. So from Genesis to Revelation, that's the story. And remember what Haggai 2.9 said. The latter glory, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is what God's up to. It's not a temple. It's the people in Christ. And ultimately all of creation is creation itself is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. That's Romans 8. All creation will mirror God's glory. And peace will characterize every square inch of creation. So go back with me. Haggai 2.9 The temple was never the end goal. The temple was just a shadow of what is the reality in Christ. We could never approach the presence of God, let alone have the presence of God indwelling in us. But through the work of Christ, we have become temples. Christ secures the indwelling spirit on our behalf. All of this is our own trajectory then. Just just to get practical for a minute. That means if you are in Christ, the spirit dwells inside you. That means whatever you are dealing with, God is giving you the power and the ability to be obedient and holy and faithful in the midst of it. That means whatever challenges you face, whatever sin that you're dealing with and uprooting in your life, that is not the final word. Whatever addiction, whatever grief, whatever problem, ailment, fill in the blank, 
God's Spirit is now indwelling you. And you, your identity in Christ, is that you are part of... You're not an individual temple. That's not how Christianity works. You are part of the temple of God. And the importance, of course, is as we gather together, we constitute a miniature temple of God here in a local church. But all of this means there is hope. There is hope for you to change. There is hope for you to overcome. There is hope for you to be different in this world. There's also the practical application of prayerful reliance. So throughout Haggai 2, we hear this command, be strong, be strong, be strong, don't be afraid. What's interesting is when Jesus condemns the temple in the Gospels, one of the reasons he condemns it is by quoting a mishmash of Old Testament prophecies, one of which includes these words, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And what he seems to be doing there is saying that no longer will it be a matter of ritual and practice, but the new practice of the people of God, the temple, will be to be people of prayer. Now, I've been listening to a biography on John Knox, which has made me just absolutely sad that I shaved my beard because Knox had a beard that went down to here. So I feel inadequate. But I've come to learn that his power wasn't in his beard. I've come to learn as I was reading an interview with the author of this biography. He says, you know, Knox was a sickly, small, frail man. And yet you remember me telling you a famous queen once said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Now, how does a small, frail man who cried the first time he felt he was called to preach (laughs) didn't go in there boldly, but went crying, weeping, thinking, I can't do it. How does does he become so fearful? And this, this biographer, I think, puts this so well. He says, the reason kings and queens were afraid of John Knox is not because of John Knox. It's because of his prayer. So when God says to Zerubbabel and Joshua and to the remnant of the people here in Haggai 2, be strong, be strong because I am with you, he might as well be saying to you and me here at Monument Heights, rely on me, be strong in prayer, rely on me, for I am in your midst. I have every intention of doing something for my glory in this church, because that is why you exist. You exist for the glory of God. And one day, when this church is no longer here, which is very likely depending on how long God tarries and all of that, but when the structure is no longer here, one day we will still see the trajectory of the line of saints from the Old Testament to the end of time as we know it where God has been building His temple by uniting people to Christ and then filling them with His Holy Spirit. That is what you and I are part of. It is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Let's pray together. Lord, this is one of those breathtaking, sweeping, scopes of Scripture that 
as we step back and gaze at it, we, we feel like we're coming up for air and we feel like we're opening our eyes for the first time. And so, Lord, I pray that that feeling would, would be consistent across the congregation. I, I pray that this congregation would walk out these doors today saying, I not only understand Haggai 2 a little better, but I understand what God is up to and I understand how Scripture fits together and I see the gloriousness of the Gospel and I see the triune God's plan, Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of the world crafting and executing this plan of redemption for every square inch of creation. Oh Lord, may that be so. And so Lord, I pray that You would open our eyes Believers and unbelievers alike, I pray that we would see the glory of the gospel of Christ and that we would see what is on the table and offered to us now, that we would see that we, through Christ's work, have peace with you. We are made righteous before you. And now you are being faithful by filling us with your spirit and making us holy. And I pray that Monument Heights would be a reflection of your glory. I pray that we would not get so caught up on the external structures of what it means to be the church. I pray that we would not fall in or lapse into unfaithful theology of thinking somehow that you dwell in a sacred space, but instead we would see that this congregation made up of a body of believers united to Christ is your temple. It is where you dwell. And I pray that we would see that with clearer eyes than we've ever seen before. And Lord, as we come to the temp or to the table, I pray that we would see that this is the great ordinance of being part and being your temple, being your house, your dwelling place, that we would eat and drink freely in your presence, no longer rebels, no longer enemies, but places that house your spirit. And I pray that we would find great grace at the table this morning. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.